Uh, thank you for those who have come and visited this morning. It's, uh, it's always nice on a snow day when there's at least one place to go and get some fellowship and to worship. And, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for the internet and the fact that a couple weeks ago uh, we didn't have a very good connection here, so we didn't end up streaming it so nobody could watch it. But we were able to sit in my living room. The Campbells came over and we we're just in our PJs basically watching church service. But man, nothing makes any better than being around God's people on a Sunday morning. So um, thanks for joining us and uh, hope you're blessed. Um, a few announcements this morning. Uh, lies, women believe, and the truth that sets them free. The ladies are continuing in their study on Tuesday nights from, or Tuesday afternoons from 1 to 3 at our house. And Wednesdays from 6 to 8. And the young ladies are meeting on Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. So I guess we'll wait to hear whether or not that's canceled today, depending on what the roads look like around that time. Um, these ladies are pretty hardcore, so many times uh, they just roll with it. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of thankful for the snow. I know that there's a lot of flu going around. And so maybe this is God protecting the, the teachers and, and the students and stuff. So anyway, um, if you need Wi-Fi this morning, we have avchapel-guest is the channel to use, and the password is actually just Disciple. Yeah. Any other, did you, I, I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I'm, I'm just as in awe of, as you are. Normally, I wouldn't stop service to deal with the live feed because you guys are here, but since there's so many people at home still, Gotta love technology. Well, if you want to, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. My wife is the South Iron internet guru right back there. I don't even think she had internet until she left home. And by then, they did have it, by the way, for those of you that are younger. All right, we are live. All right. Well, anyway, um, that said, um, if you talk to uh, Tammy or uh, Miss Dana to see if they're thinking about canceling the, the young lady's study tonight, um, let's go ahead and start our study in James chapter 2. So this morning, uh, we're getting to what I would call kind of the, the major theme of the book of James. Uh, James is uh, a contender. James doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't back off. He's kind of a heavy hitter, uh, but at the same time, I think James is probably a heavy, heavy hitter because he spent most of his life with the Son of God and did not believe who he was, and yet he watched his life and everything that Jesus said he was, everything that Old Testament Scripture had proclaimed that he would be, he fulfilled it to the letter. And there are still prophecies about his return and his past faithfulness seen in his life, walked on this earth in human flesh, in situations that are difficult, kind of, to me, proves that he's able to be trusted for the future. And so James uh, doesn't pull any punches because he loves the people that he's writing to so much that he wants them to be equipped. He wants them to be mature in faith, knowing that if they're not, it could mean train wreck for them. And so as he's proclaiming these truths, they are very heavy, and yet he's proclaiming them boldly because he wholeheartedly believes them, and he wants the people that he's teaching to not believe them in vain, if you will. He doesn't want them to, to miss out on the reward that is in following Jesus. 
And so um, a few weeks ago, we talked about how we were born again, according to verse 18 of chapter 1, his own will, by God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth was actually what has begotten us again. We were known by God and God knew us and he revealed himself to us through his word and his spirit giving us understanding. That's how spiritual life begins. But then he continues and he talks about how we are not to be deceived. He doesn't want us to be deceived. So in chapter one, he actually says this in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights. And then in the same chapter, two more times, he says, I don't want you to be deceived. Now, I don't know about you, but that's love. When parents repeat things to their children, they're trying to drill them into their heads and it can get annoying. But it's because they love us enough to warn us. So then he goes on in in verse 22 and he says, but be doers of the word and not just those who hear it who deceive ourselves. We can actually deceive ourselves. We can be deceived by Satan, but we can actually deceive ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not. He says in verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religious religion is useless. And so he says, there's a difference between knowing the truth and walking in the truth. And we need to be very careful that we walk in the truth and don't just talk about it. And so what is faith? We're going to talk about faith this morning. What is faith? Well, I looked up the definition on dictionary.com where it says complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Well, we have a better definition, I think, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The Bible speaks for itself. It says faith is the substance of of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. But what is faith not? We need to know what faith is, but we also need to know what faith is not. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Many people, uh, very intellectual people, will say, well, that's just blind faith. And I would submit to you that faith is not blind. Faith is based on evidence. In Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet says, Come, let us reason together. Though our sins were as scarlet, yet God has made us white as snow. And so it's a reasonable faith that we practice. So it's not believing in spite of evidence, but it's obeying in spite of the consequences. That's faith. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says that faith can save us eternally. It can if you have it. Faith can save. It has the potential to save those who have faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, faith can help us walk through life. It can. Uh, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then, Here's a sobering one that I came across. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says that whatever we do apart from faith as believers is actually sin. And and you may say, well, not necessarily. But if you think about Abraham we're going to talk about today, Abraham did some things apart from faith and actually ended up producing uh, 
children of the flesh rather than children that were by faith. And there's still consequences playing out today because of that. And, and then I quoted a modern-day prophet, you might call him, George Michael. I don't know if he's a prophet of God, but he's a modern-day prophet that people give ear to. He said, you have to have faith to faith to faith you know, and as I was reading this passage and the word kept coming up in my mind, so I, here, here's what I did. I googled that song, and that's not a good song, but what I found out is as he's singing that song, I guess it would be nice, and he says all kinds of other stuff, he just keeps tagging on the end this phrase, you got to have faith, faith, faith. He never says in what, he just says you got to have it. I don't know what that means. But we just drink it up. We just go, hey, this is a great song. Look at this guy. He's a theologian. you got to have faith. And if you go to Hobby Lobby, there are signs everywhere that say believe and faith. But those things are nothing unless there's something that they've put their faith in. So my question for you this morning is, faith in what? Or faith, in our case, in whom? Everyone has faith, right? We had faith that our skills and our vehicles would get us here safely this morning. Each one of you have faith in the chair you're sitting on. Although some of them, I've stepped on them, they've almost bent under me. Tried to get rid of the bad ones. But you didn't sit there and go, you know, I believe that this chair exists, but I don't know if it can hold me up. Many of you had blind faith in some ways. You'd never tested that chair. You've never seen it. And you just plop down in it like it holds you up. Why? I guess you trust me to make sure there's no bad chairs in here. You had faith in either the chair or the person that put it there or in the manufacturer. We all exercise faith in everyday life. You have faith as you drive to work that the person coming the other way is paying attention, which is kind of weak faith. It's, I don't know if it's a good thing to put your faith in because most people I see when they're driving, they're looking at their phone, that they're not going to cross over the rumble strip and the bright yellow line and all the other warning signs that they're not going to pass in a bad corner. But my, 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 my question is, what is your faith in? The object of your faith is more important than your faith, what you put your trust and your hope in. So how can, I, how can you and I really evaluate where we've placed our faith? Now remember that faith is our complete trust or confidence. So where is your faith? What or who do you turn to when life's hardest circumstances squeeze you? Where's your first response? Do you call mom? Do you pray? Do you, do you call your pastor? Do you interact with your, your friends? Do you call your boss at work? Like all of us have a place that we kind of default go to. As soon as something happens, we're like, I need to call so-and-so. Now, the same thing's true not only when bad things happen, but when good things happen. What or who do you turn to when something awesome happens and you want to celebrate? Who do you invite? Who are the people you contact? For me, over the years, it's slowly and gradually become not so much just my family, but also people that I know have been, I've been asking to pray for me. We're looking for God's guidance. We're looking for God's provision. So when we celebrate a lot of the time, I forget to tell my family because I didn't always remember to ask them to pray for me. I went to other people. So who do you turn to when things are hard? And who do you turn to when you have things to celebrate? Now, if you're in the world and you're not quite all the way along the side yet, you haven't matured yet, 
many of us might have a tendency to celebrate or mourn with the use of a substance or with the use of a bottle or with the use of uh, internet to distract you from what's going on or or some people they they go in all kinds of directions my point is is if those are things that you go to that's where your faith is actually put it's not in god but it's in some other thing or some other person or a relationship the question i have for you there is where do you go for wisdom and advice when there's a problem to solve do you go to your own intellect your own ability for me that's a stumbling block maybe it's not for you but I, every job I've ever had, I've, my job is to estimate what things are going to cost so I can make plans to build them or to do them. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust not in your own understanding, which is very hard for me because I think I understand things, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord and He will direct your path. He'll make your path straight. If someone asks you if you know where you're headed, when you die, how do you answer? Because that is where your faith is placed. For some people, for a lot of Christians even, they won't stop and think, I got nothing to offer. I, I, only Jesus. They'll say, well, I've done a lot of good things. And I think that God will see that and it'll outweigh the bad. I would submit to you that's, that's a, a weak faith. That's a strong faith for many, but it's a faith that's got holes in it. So faith in what or in whom? Where is your faith placed? And I will get to the scripture here in a minute, I promise. So there are three kinds of faith that James is going to talk to us about today. He writes to professing Christ followers. He's writing to professing believers. And I think it's important that we make that distinction because remember, James, the half-brother of Jesus, even though he doesn't call himself that, he says the bond slave of Jesus Christ. He submitted himself, he surrendered himself under the control of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's writing to this group of people he calls the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Now, if you remember with me, they, this is one of the earliest letters, and it's written to Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. They, they met Jesus in some way or another. They were impacted by his ministry. They believed in the gospel, and they're following him. But right after that, there was a young man by the name of Stephen, and he testified very boldly, and he was just a deacon in the church. He was a servant. He was a table waiter. He was delivering meals. And when he was doing this, he was actually approached by Pharisees and scribes, and he testified boldly, speaking from the Torah about the fulfillment and the Messiah that came and fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He said, and you murdered the king of glory. You murdered the king of life. You put him on the cross. You called him a blasphemer, and yet he was the Messiah you've been waiting for. And for that, they high-fived him and said, let's go have some Cokes, right? No. They picked up rocks. They were spitting mad. They threw the rocks at him until he died, and he died praying that God would forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing that they were actually stoning someone who followed the God they claimed to know. And so after his bold testimony, he was the first martyr that we have recorded in the Bible who was martyred, he was killed as a witness, a testimony against them that they were actually against God and not for him. 
But as a result of that, it was like blood in the water. You ever watch Shark Week? You ever watch the shark shows? To get the sharks to show up, they start cutting up fresh fish, and it bleeds all over the place, and they throw it in the water. And as soon as they do, the, the shark, just like on Nemo, because it's real, it's a cartoon, they get a little bit of blood in their, their senses, and they go nuts. They go into a feeding frenzy. And the people that were persecuting the church at the time, they saw Stephen get stoned to death, and it was like blood in the water. And they started persecuting. They started pressing. They started, and Paul the apostle is one of those that went on a, on a rampage, although he thought he was very zealous for God. He went on a rampage to drag people out of their homes and actually take them from their homes and put them in prison for their faith in Jesus. And so during this persecution, the church is shooken up, and we see this as wind blowing what is called the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. The word there is diaspora. They're blown by persecution, and yet what God's going to do is he's going to use it as the seedbed, the seed blown all over the surrounding region with people that know Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit that are going to testify everywhere they go about the freedom and the truth and the gospel that sets men free from sin and forgiveness and, and gives them all the things that God implies his kingdom come, his will be done. And so who should a Christ follower place their complete trust and confidence in? Sunday school answer, Jesus, right. So uh, should we faith, place our faith in our work, in our, our jobs, in our money, in our ability to reason, in our skills, our boss, our pastor, our family, our mentor, any teachers? Even the most godly people in our lives, our full confidence shouldn't be placed in them because they, they can mess up. They can fail us. Our full confidence should be placed in the Lord. So our complete devoted faith should be in Jesus Christ only. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, we already went over that. He speaks to the fact that our confidence shouldn't be even in our own understanding. And just the other night we were reading in Matthew, I've been reading with the kids in the evening, through the book of Matthew, and we've made it all the way to Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, verse 1 through 4, it talks about childlike faith. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We always want to measure ourselves. We always want to, who's the greatest? You know, and the disciples were kind of, childlike in that way, but Jesus called the little child next to his side and set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, and in some translations it says, unless you humble yourself and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So whoever humbles themselves, so to place your faith in somebody else other than yourself or in something else other than a religious system is, is humbling. So professing Christ followers, and I put Christ followers because Christian has become a word that doesn't mean anything anymore. To be a Christian in our society, it, eh, okay, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I was raised in church or I, I got saved at camp years ago or whatever you want to call it. But Christian is kind of a buzzword and it's, it's become vain. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. 
So if you've ever heard a Christian say, don't be like me, be like Jesus, it's like, well, you're supposed to be like Jesus. You call yourself a Christian. That's not legalism. That's just reality. But for professing Christ followers, faith should be present in our lives, yes, but it should also be evident. It should be revealed in how we live. So James compares three types of faith. He wants us to know whether we truly are in the faith, the faith in Jesus. So in verse 14 through 17 of chapter 2, he talks about dead faith. He's going to say it three times, I think, in this passage. Faith without works is dead. And in verse 18 through 19, he's going to talk about demonic faith. I think to shock them out of their piety. And then in verse uh, 20 through 26, he's going to talk about dynamic faith. So let's begin reading our passage here in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, then what does it profit them? Verse 17, Thus also faith by itself if it does not have works, is actually dead. So faith without works. Does this work in everyday life? Is the question that James poses. He's very practical. He says, you say you have faith, and yet what I want to point out to you is your faith, the way that you live it, if you're not careful, um, is actually dead faith. And I have there for you kind of a graphic thing, but it's a toe tag, and it says, I have faith. But many Christians to the Lord look like this. They say that they have faith, but if you look at their life, they actually look like a cadaver or a dead body. There's nothing alive in them, just words. And so does this work in everyday life? And his example is, consider somebody comes into the church. We always pray that people come here that need the Lord. But many times people don't come in and express their need to be saved. They don't just walk in and go, you know what? I need to be saved spiritually. Don't help me with anything. I just need saved spiritually. They'll come in and they'll say, hey, I got nowhere to live. I got no food. I I don't have any clothing. It's cold outside. And unfortunately, what happens many times if we're not careful is we go, well, get right with the Lord and we'll help you out. And, And, but the problem with that is I don't ever see Jesus doing that. We're so religious that we're, we're afraid of getting duped. We're afraid of somebody taking advantage of the Lord's money. But what God does is he says, come and take advantage of me. What God does is he shows up and he washes people's feet. What God does is he sends Jesus, who goes into a room with 12 guys, knowing that one of them's a devil, and washes all their feet, not just 11. He literally becomes their doormat. He takes the form of the lowest slave in their house and he washes poop off their feet. I don't like washing poop off my own kid's bottom, let alone some nasty old guy. Their feet stink. Guys' feet stink. So my point is, is that the way that God does it, if you look at the the stories in Mark, especially in Mark, Mark points out that that Jesus was like an ox. He was like a, a servant, just always taking burdens and just bearing them. He would get up early, and then he would get up early because he knew people were going to show up, and they were going to need stuff. 
And then we see him show up at these different places and people show up out of the woodwork. Some people come and say, son of David, I'm blind, help me see. And some are brought by people that know that he can heal and they carry these paralytic people to Jesus. They dig holes in ceilings and lower them. They get involved directly. They take them to Jesus. So I I said this last week, but I want to point out that God doesn't take people to a program. He doesn't call you and I to take people into a program to help them. He, he asks us, I want you to take the people that come to you and bring them to me. Take them to a person, not a program. So what we do, unfortunately, without even realizing it, we say, hey, glad you came to service. Be warmed and filled. And we send them out the door. Their practical needs aren't met. They still have them. They're still hungry. They still don't have the right clothing. We send them, we say, God bless you because I'm not going to. That's what we say to them without realizing. The Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be over here. I got to go home. We got lunch today. You know, we got a family gathering. We got whatever we got going on. And and many times we see this play out not even in real relationship anymore. We see it on the internet. We see it on social media. People put out this post that says, hey, my brother's dying of cancer. and, And people go, well, I'm praying for you. Or if they don't know the Lord, sometimes they'll say, positive vibes your way, or, you know, whatever. But the Lord says, why don't you get involved? Praying for them or thinking about them is is not necessarily helpful unless you're actually doing it. It's not just lip service. If you say to someone, I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you, and you actually do it, do it to your heart's content. But if you're just saying it, stop. Stop. But what he says is, if, if you're going to think about them, what's going to happen to you as a believer is if you actually are thinking about them, you're putting yourself in their shoes and going, man, what would, I, what would I need if I was in that spot? My wife's good at this. I'm not. My wife is awesome at, at thinking about people and going, man, I wonder what they need. And of course, she asks people what they need, and they're all, oh, I'm nothing, I'm fine. Because we're, we're Midwesterners. You can't, we, unless we can earn it, we don't want it. But thinking about people to the point where we go, man, if I was in their shoes, I would need this or that. If the Lord lays that on your heart, do it. Man, you will stand in stark contrast to all the positive thoughts and the prayers and whatever that don't do them any good. Now, pray for them. Pray that God would give you inspiration to what specifically they need because when he inspires you and you do that thing and they didn't ask you, that brings the Lord directly into the situation and they go, how could they have known we had that need? And man, when that happens, you know it was the Lord, and it gives you joy because our Father knows our needs, and they need to know that He knows their needs. But people with dead faith substitute words for deeds. And in 1 John chapter 3, uh, John, the Apostle John writes about this. 1 John 3, verse 17. Verse 16 is where I'm going to start. He says, By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? It actually proves that the love of God doesn't abide in him. That it might be love, but it's the world's love, not God's love. God's love comes in the middle of situations and provides what's needed. 
Verse 18, he says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And that ought to be how our faith is lived out. Now, can that faith save the person who has it? If it can't save the person that's going to experience the fruit of it, how can it save the person that has it? The kind of faith that we're talking about here is intellectual assent. Intellectual assent to the fact that God is God. The kind of faith that's spoken of but never lived out, can it save a person? The answer is no. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Many will come to me on the day of judgment and say to me, Lord, Lord. And yet I will look at them and say, Depart from me, I never knew you. There was no relationship, there was just talk. And so uh, the question becomes, though, are we saved by our works? We'll get to that. So in verse 18, he continues and he talks about what I'm going to call, and I really just stole it from Warren Wearsby, demonic faith. Demonic faith. Verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, one God, well, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. Did you know the demons, fallen angels, which is a whole other Bible study, but fallen angels that were dragged out of heaven by obeying Satan rather than obeying God, they have faith. It's not saving faith, but they have faith. In Mark chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, they bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. They confess him as the Son of God. Their words testify Jesus is God's Son. In Luke chapter 8, verse 31, they believe a place of punishment exists. They're already further ahead than most people in our day and age. Is hell really a thing? The demons believe that hell's a thing. You know why? Because they know they're going there. They know that at a certain time, at the time of judgment, they no longer get to be free. They're going to be cast into the lake of fire. They know that. They believe that. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 13, they actually confess Jesus to be the final judge. Why do I say that? Because Jesus shows up, there's a demon-possessed man, and the demon-possessed man screeches and says, Jesus, the Son of God, are you here to judge us? Before the appointed time? And then he tells him to shut his pie hole. And he does. So the demons believe in God. They believe he exists. The demons are not atheists. They're not agnostics. They're a little bit more wise than people in our day. Demons believe in Jesus and they know he's the son of God. They believe in his deity, that he's divine. They believe, and look at this, it says there in verse 19, they actually tremble. So not only do they have an intellectual faith, they have an emotional faith. But I would submit to you that intellectually believing that God exists, even that Jesus is the Son of God, and having an emotional experience or even a trembling about that doesn't save a person. It doesn't save a person. There are many who have had emotional experiences with God that are not saved. They know, they tremble, and yet they still disobey. When my daughter gets in trouble, and, and I say, you disobeyed, and she stops, and she does the whole crying thing, puts on a big show, 
and I say, you've disobeyed, you are going to be punished. She goes, I don't want to disobey. Now, did she say the right thing? Yes. But what's going on here? She says she doesn't want to disobey, but she disobeys. Proving what? That she wants to disobey. And so she is enacting her will against my authority. Now, if I had to follow my authority, I'd probably have some problems with it too. But the reality is her faith does not cause her to obey. There's no works attached to it. And so that's demonic faith. Demonic faith can't save. But then there's dynamic faith. And we see it in the life of Abraham. So in verse 20, he goes on to say, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Do we want to know? Yes, we should want to know. Faith without works attached to it is dead. Now, faith apart from works can save. But faith with works is what proves it. And I'm going to rephrase that later. But I want to make the distinction that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we'll get into there in a little bit, says we are saved by faith, excuse me, we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. So these works that we're talking about have nothing to do with doing something to earn our way to heaven. Heaven is not up a, a ladder that we have to climb and we have to do and we have to prove ourselves. It's not how it works. But what we're going to find out is that there should be works attached to our saving faith. So in Genesis 22, and I'm going to summarize the story, faith demonstrates itself through obedience. So in verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, everybody that's a Jewish Christian at that time, their ears would perk up because they would all say, Abraham's our father. We follow his faith. He said, okay, you follow Abraham. That's good. Let's look at his faith and what it looked like and the works that were attached to it. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or mature or whole. And the scriptures, excuse me, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And so we see this story about Abraham offering his son on the altar. And it's a very romantic scene because I say romantic in the sense that he shows his wholehearted devotion to the one that has called him and saved him and opened up his eyes. So faith is demonstrated. What you have to remember is that in Genesis 15, God had promised to Abraham. He made promises. God told Abraham that many nations would come through his lineage. He told him he was going to give him a son. He gave him a son at the ripe old age in the 90s to 100. He had to wait a long time. Faith waits. But then God then told Abraham, this son that I promised to give you descendants through, he had specifically said, the child of promise is Isaac, not Ishmael. Okay, so the, the promise is now attached to this child's life. Seems to be a little bit shaky. But then God then told Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your son that you love, and I want you to take him to a mountain I'll show you, 
and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. He didn't mince words. He didn't say, go and worship with him and spiritually present him before me and offer him as a living sacrifice. He said, offer him as a burnt offering. So in order to do that, Abraham had to walk for three days to take his son with him, to take the wood, the fire, because they didn't have a lighter, and he had to take a knife and his son. So they go to this mountain And so if Abraham had said, I trust you, Lord, without putting Isaac on the altar, without walking for three days, without taking the knife to kill him, without taking the fire to burn him, without taking the wood, because there was no wood on top of this mountain, then it's faith without works. But he said, you know what? The Lord promised that he was going to give me descendants through this child. So if he's going to do it, whether I burn the son out of obedience or not, he's going to be faithful. So he did it. Got all the way up there. As a matter of fact, as they're walking for three days, Isaac's got questions in his mind. And as they're walking up the hill, they leave the servants at the bottom. They walk up the hill. Isaac is carrying the wood that he's going to be burned on on his back. And he starts to figure things out. Uh, Dad, we've got... Because this wasn't the first worship service Isaac had attended. It was a pattern in their lives. They knew all about sacrifice. They knew about, all about offering. They knew what happened to the sacrifice. And so he takes them up there and he says, Dad, uh, we got the wood and we got the fire and we got, we got the knife. Um, where's the animal we're going to sacrifice? And Abraham expresses his faith with his words, and he says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And that's on purpose, because it was a foreshadow of God providing himself as the sacrifice to take away sin. So Abraham takes his son up. He builds an altar out of stones that were not hewn or broken. He lays the wood on the altar. He tells his son, who is not a five-year-old, his son, who is a teenager, says, get up on the altar. He gets up on there. He ties him down. He gets the flame ready. It's over here. And then he takes the knife. He lifts it up. And as he's almost to the point of no return, God says, stay your hand. Don't kill your son. I now know that you will not put anything I've given you between me and you. You're not going to worship your son instead of me. And then all of a sudden he said, look over there, and there's a ram in the thicket given for an offering. So the Lord rewarded Abraham's obedience by providing himself the sacrifice. And the substitute took the place of his son, and they worshiped out of thankfulness to the Lord. Note, Abraham was not saved by obedience. His obedience proved that he was already saved. Abraham is not saved by his obedience. God didn't at that point say, okay, now you're mine. He was proving in the life and in this testing that Abraham was already his. He was already wholeheartedly confident and devoted to doing whatever God gave him to do because he was already saved. Abraham was thankful to be a child of God, and so he willingly obeyed. I guarantee his wife was not happy when he said, hey, uh, I'll be back. Where are you guys going? 
we're going to go sacrifice our son. I don't, I don't know how that conversation went. We don't have it. But I guarantee that that was a testing in and of itself. So real faith is a demonstration of God's grace. Now, what I didn't go over was a couple more verses. Verse 25, he says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received messengers and sent them out another way? Rahab was a harlot that lived in Jericho. And in the book of Joshua, I encourage you to read it this week. I I think that this is in here to show that it's not just for the Hebrews. It's not just for the, the direct lineage of Abraham. But we have an example of a Gentile who obeyed and by faith took in these spies that were coming in to spy out the land. And when their life was at risk, Rahab had seen the Red Sea crossing. She had heard the stories about these Israelites that had been miraculously kept in the wilderness. And she let these spies in. She hid them from those that were in her village. And then she sent them out another way, saving them, and actually ended up, because of her taking care of them, the agreement was when they came in to destroy Jericho, that her and anybody in her household would be saved. She saved them because she was already saved. She was under the protection of God. And so real faith is a demonstration of God's grace. Salvation is a gift. It's not something we can earn. I don't think that can be said enough times. We like to earn things. I like the fact that there's an agreement at work. When I work, they write me a check. Now, many days I don't want to go to work, but that's the agreement. I come in, I work, they pay me for coming in to work. I want to give them the best for their money. But the reality is, salvation's not that way. I didn't show up and do 22 chores, and then God said, you're good with me. He said, I want to offer you salvation by my son. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace Christians are saved, and grace is undeserved. It's undeserved. We don't deserve God's favor. That's grace. So when God calls you to serve somebody or love somebody and you're like struggling with it because you're like, you know, they really don't deserve it. Good, that's grace. You can now exercise grace. Um, But it's through faith. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says, it's not of works lest anyone would boast. By grace you have been saved through faith and it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone would boast or brag about it. So Christians are not saved by works, so we can't brag, because we would. I brag about all kinds of stuff I don't actually do. People say, your kids look great. I always go, yep, look at me. They're like, that doesn't make sense. I go, well, look at my wife. That's what would make sense, right? So Ephesians 2, though, continues on and shows us that salvation is shown in not only his saving us, but then him continuing to work in us. Verse 10, he goes on and he says, for we are his workmanship. Salvation is not of works. We are his works. So if you want to boast about anything, boast about the fact that you are his workmanship. 
The word is poema. It's where we get our word masterpiece. We are Christians. We are God's masterpiece. Do you believe that? Do you know that? We're his workmanship. So when you start putting down the way you look or, or your lack of skills or some other thing, you're putting down God's workmanship. Recognize that. Confess that. Repent of that. You are his workmanship. Your weaknesses are form-fit in how God wanted to shape you to reveal his glory to the world. Your weaknesses. We can get onto your strengths in the same way, but many of us don't go, yeah, I'm strong in this area of my life. No, we, we walk around like Eeyore and say, well, I can't do that or I can't do this. Look at it as freedom. You don't have to do that. You're not made to do that. Praise the Lord, you know. But then he goes on to say this. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Christians are created for good works. And then he says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Which God prepared beforehand that we can walk in them. God has already prepared good works for us to simply walk in. How many of you want to be used by God? You don't have to raise your hand. You can if you want. But how many of us want to be used by God? We spend all this time stressing about, God, what's your plan for my life? How do you want to use me? When really all we got to do is go, God, I'm willing to be used. I'm, I got to go to work today. So if you want to use me there, that's where I'll be. You know where I'm going to drive. You know what gas station I'm going to stop at. You know that we're going to have to stop at DG for something. You know that there's things that are already programmed into my schedule. But I want to be used by you. How do you want to use me, Lord? I'm willing. And once we're willing... He's prepared good works before you. He knows that you have to work. He knows that it snowed and you got to stay at home all day because school was canceled. He knows that. He's in charge of that. And guess what? Our good works, if we will just be faithful to see them, to walk in them, they prove whose we are. We don't have to stress about it. They prove whose we are. Jesus Christ revealed who he is and who sent him by his Father's works through him. Did you know that? That Jesus Christ actually had works. Now, we know that. We celebrate his miracles. We celebrate his work on the cross. But he proved to the world who he was by what he did. Are we what we do? No. But we prove whose we are by what we do. Yes. John chapter 14, verse 7. John 14, verse 7. I'm taking the long way, apparently. There we go. Jesus says to his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip, being very practical, says, "Uh, Lord, would you please show us the Father? Now, he's just said, if you've known me, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. That's all I want. I just want to see the Father. And he just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? 
Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. What they recognized about Jesus is that his teaching was powerful because he had authority. It's because of who he was speaking for. He says, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. We're no different. Did you know that? The Father who dwells in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit does the works. Verse 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Believe me for the sake of what I do. And so many of us struggle with this. They're like, why don't people believe in Jesus? And I would submit to you that many times it's because we haven't proven who sent us by our works. Works that God does in and through us reveal to others who our Father is, who sent us. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus speaks on this same thing. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, this is what Jesus spoke to his disciples right before his ascension into heaven. It says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in my, excuse me, in his own authority. He says, but you shall receive power, and when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But I want to make a distinction of what that says. It doesn't say that you should be witnesses. That puts the responsibility on us. He doesn't say you should go into all the nations. He says you shall. There's a big difference in should and shall. Should means I got to get going. I got to get my bootstraps going. I got to get the right clothes on. I got to start doing stuff. But shall is the idea of what a fruit tree does. A fruit tree is planted and the nutrients are in the soil and God sends the rain. He opens up the sunlight. And what shall happen is that it shall produce fruit after its kind, just like Genesis says. It produces fruit. How many apple trees have you seen that are going, and they're like weightlifting to produce apples? They are apple trees, and therefore they produce apples. We are Christians, and therefore we produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is within us, then we are children of the King. We are, our Father is in heaven, and we will produce after our kind, just like the trees, just like animals, just like human beings. And if we are Christ followers, we will produce Christ followers after our kind. We, it's not something we should do. It's something that will naturally happen. As we are submitted to the Spirit, God will produce children, spiritual children from our lives. Now, others' works prove who their father is. 
As a matter of fact, there was a group that came to Jesus and they said, our father is Abraham, and they were boasting about it. And he said what? You are of your father the devil. He didn't mince words. He said, if if you were children of Abraham, then you'd believe in me because everything Abraham said was about me. Everything that Abraham preached, proclaimed, the books of Moses was all about Jesus. You think that in reading the scriptures, he said to them, that you have life. But in the scriptures, what you'll find is that it's all talking about me. It's all about Jesus. And so we've talked about three types of faith today. Is your life living proof that your faith in God is dead or demonic? Is it an intellectual assent to God as your Lord? Is it even an intellectual assent that is tied together with an emotional attachment? Those are, not, those are dead faith and those are demonic faith. Or is your life living proof that your whole confidence and your whole trust are placed upon Jesus Christ? And it'll be proved in what shall happen in your life. Now, there will be circumstances. There will be things that are outside of your control. But you will bloom where you're planted. The Lord Jesus has made it possible for anyone who wills to come. He said, whosoever will may come. Whoever exercises their will to come to me, to humble themselves, that person can overflow with dynamic faith like rivers of living water. So one question is, what do you say about Jesus? And the other question I have for you is, what does your life profess about him? Are you a pretender or are you a contender? And all it's going to do is prove what really is flowing from you. And the reality is what is in you, out of the abundance of the heart, flow the issues of life, flow what's actually in there. So we were going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, but I think we're going to wait till next week. But this morning, I want you to think about, as we sing this last song, where do you stand? What, what does your faith look like? Does it look like demonic faith? Does it look like dead faith? Or is it a living faith that overflows from who Christ is in you? So, Father, thank you for this, um, this hard-hitting message about faith and works. I think I can agree with most of us in here, Lord, that um, we don't want to have dead faith. We want to have living faith that produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control, all of which there's no law against. Father, we don't want to prove to you who we are because you know who we are. That apart from you, we can do no good thing. And at the same time, Lord, we want to bear fruit that brings glory to who you are and reveals the Father to those who are lost and without a shepherd around us. Father, forgive us in the ways that we have had dead faith, in the ways that we've professed to believe one thing and lived another way, in the ways that we treat people that that profess that we really don't have the love of the Father dwelling in us. Cause us to see the works that you've laid forth and ahead of us this week and give us the ability to see those things, to respond and say, Father, what do you want me to do? And to get our hands dirty. Help us to wash people's feet. Help us to meet practical needs. Help us to pray for healing for those who are lost. Help us to love our brothers and sisters in practical ways that prove whose father we serve. We, we are yours, Lord. So we want to live that way. So 
Thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning. Would you work on us, Lord? We're works in progress. We pray that your kingdom come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may it begin with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.